Welcome back to the Infinite Rabbit Hole. That's it. Bye, everybody. Happy New Year. <laughs> uh, welcome back to the Infinite Rabbit Hole, everyone. I am your host, Jeremy. Today, we're going to dive into one of the biggest mysteries when it comes to cryptozoology here in the United States. What is it? You guys know? Do you know? Van Meter Visitor. The Van Meter Visitor. That's right, Jacob. Yeah, I'm smart. Yeah, yeah you are. So, Jake, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. And on top of doing well, I'm wearing uh, the world famous, most okayest podcast in the world shirt <laughs> because of your quote from, I think, Communion Part 2. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is the sport version, so it's kind of like that uh, moisture wicking type stuff, so it's actually very comfortable. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm I'm wearing my new beige uh, Infinite Rabbit Hole shirt that I nice. got from the new shop. I like it. It's nice. Yeah. I like the color. All right, uh, kid. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. How how are things up there in uh, old Maple Land? Oh, you know, they are. They are. <laughs> they, oh, are. they are. Oh, they are. Oh, yeah, they are. They're. It's it's a time up here, you know. And coming from outside of the Matrix himself. Old Happy New Year, Jeff. How you doing, man? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm good. Uh, well, no, I'm not. I'm not good. I'm stressed out. Stressed <laughs> Me out. Too. Hey, welcome to the club, pal. Hey, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. You too, yeah. pal. Yeah, I love all of you. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. My Valentine is away in Maryland for a five-week detachment, so I guess you you all are my Valentine, so happy Ooh. Valentine's Day. Aww. Yeah. I'll send you flowers. Aww, Especially you, Jeff. Especially you. He really likes flowers. You send me flowers? Yeah. Indica or sativa? <laughs> <laughs> because I love you so much. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. It's funny. Love it. Um, before we get started, Jake, do you want to make an announcement? Nope. Okay. You sure? Uh, yeah, we'll wait till it's closer to the time. It's not a big deal. Okay. All right. Well, Jake's pregnant. That's Yay! it. Yay! <laughs> well, I can't wait to rub your belly. Well, it's because all that frog water. Thanks, Alex Jones. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> wait a second. Can we just, can we just stop for a second and just enjoy how much that evolved from what it was <laughs> yeah. what it actually is to yeah. all that frog water. Thanks, Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I knew I'd get a, a crack out of Jeff finally for once in his life from that one. Uh, no, all right, I'll say it. Um, I am planning here in the next... I gave Jeremy two months to find a replacement co-host because I am planning on leaving the show. Um, I've been having a big struggle with balance lately. Um, I can't balance out a life where I am constantly working. I have zero time to myself. And... You know, part of that is that I'm preparing to get out of the military, so I'm going through a 
plethora of medical appointments and mental health appointments, which are all good things. But then I'm trying to learn my new job that was offered to me here in Southern California. So doing that, I officially have started um, pastoral training. So that takes up an awful lot of time. And, you know, I just don't have time for the show. So I told Jeremy to find somebody. Now, whether, well, let's preface that. I'm not saying that it's not going to be like on a, a guest episode type basis or I say, hey, I've got this cool project or whatever. Jeremy's been trying to get me to do, um, you know, so, same thing I did over on uh, Phil's podcast where I broke down Matthew 24 in the Bible and related to current times and events. Jeremy wants me to do something like that. So, yeah, calling him up and saying, hey, I've got something to throw out there on the show. But I told Jeremy that, you know, We've been building this thing for forever, and the first time I left was for this reason. I wanted to start going to seminary, and then things fell apart right there. But this is, you know, the official, it's actually happening. But at the same time, I don't want the podcast to just crash and burn. I don't want, you know, my spot to just be vacant. So, you know, Jeremy, find some somebody that can fill my spot, that is passionate about the show, that can, you know, stick to a schedule, can do things for the show like editing and that sort of stuff and, you know, has the time frame for it because I had to be open and honest with Jeremy. The last thing I want is to still be here, but, you know, providing half a half product, you know, less than desirable work. Um, you know, the reason why I haven't busted out that Trolls episode really is because I just don't have time to research and put together that massive of a project you know, I, I just, there's no time for it. And so instead of dragging this process out and being just a burden, I'd rather be replaced with someone that can, you know, take over that spot so that, you know, Jeremy and Jeff and Kenza are getting a valuable member that they deserve to work with, not someone that's constantly like, oh, I don't have time for this. Oh, I don't have time for this and stuff like that. Because, I mean, that's the way it is right now. I just have zero time for myself. I got a motorcycle and 100 pieces in the garage. And, you know, I've been wanting to fix the paint job for a month now, but I have zero time to get into the garage to do it because I'm spending, you know, what, eight to 10 hours at work every single day, right? But then I'm doing, um, you know, editing the podcast, start doing the merch stuff, um, you know, working on different music stuff for it and everything like that, trying to do research for it. Um, and then on my weekends, I have pretty much church the entire weekend, you know, plus me and my wife actually helped plant a church on our military base. So we have to do that on Sundays. I have pastoral training on Saturdays. I just don't have time for anything else except for work. And it's causing a tremendous amount of strain in you know, how I operate and the things that's expected of me, especially on this show. So I'd rather just be replaced and just, you know, nip it in the bud and say, Jeremy, I, this is what's been going on and I need you to start finding someone else. But that being said, given a couple months, not saying, you know, like you would to any boss, you know, I consider Jeremy my boss because he's, you know, the pretty much the main head honcho of this, this thing. But, um, you know, you would expect to tell any boss, hey, I don't, uh, you know, I'm planning on quitting in 30 days or whatever, just so that they have the heads up and it's not just a huge shock, unless you hate your boss, in which case that's, <laughs> but that's not the way I feel about Jeremy. So that's what's been going on lately. All right. So what does that mean for the infinite rabbit hole? That means that you, 
<laughs> well, no longer will you have oh, really ew. cool. Listen to that evil laugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the background's red, see? Hmm. Well, that means that we'll no longer have really cool intros. We will not have any more artwork done. So get your stickers now or get in your request to Jake now because when he goes, I don't know how to do that shit. I'm not <laughs> going to do it. So uh, what we have now is pretty much what we're going to have until I want to learn something new, which maybe soon. I don't know. That is a good point. Um, if any of you listeners want something specific, I mean, we only have so many different options in the store, but you want a specific design or have a request hit us up you know go to our group facebook page and dm us or put it up there and say or you know hit us up at infinite rabbit hole gmail.com and say hey i'd really like this like the only reason why we have coasters is because we had a specific fan that said that he wanted coasters so when we left printful which didn't have that option available i looked at redbubble and the first thing i saw was they made coasters so i uh jumped right on it and i made a bunch of different designs with coasters on it so we will provide those sorts of things you know especially while i'm here and i can teach jeremy how to do this stuff but it's a lot it's a lot of stuff to do you know it takes probably um 20 hours for me to make a good infant rabbit hole design so it's it's a lot of work so basically uh all the really cool audio things that you guys hear the music the intros and stuff like that that's all going to go away um, there will be some changes to the infinite rabbit hole. Um, I will talk to you guys about these later, but I do have some sort of an idea of where, what direction I want to go to go in. Um, and I, th I, I think it's in the long run, it's going to make the show a lot better. Um, so as of right now, we are looking for another co-host. So if you are interested, you got to let us know now. Um, I'm not making any decisions. Uh, off the wing, we are going to have interview processes. Um, I just don't know what they are yet, but you got to get in contact with me. Infinite, uh, infinite rabbit hole at gmail.com. Hit me up on DM on Facebook. Uh, go over to infinite rabbit hole.com and hit the, the message message us or uh, whatever button, something like that. And let me know that you are interested. I'm not going to make this decision quick and we may have some episodes where we just have three people or two who knows. Um, Cause Jeremy's going to leave too. I'm gone. <laughs> it's all kids now. Kid, this is yours. Good luck. Okay. <laughs> uh, Don't ruin it. Uh, <laughs> can I fire myself now? No. <laughs> all right. Um, but that's enough of that. We've, we've talked for quite a while. Jeff, you got anything that you want to say? It's my bedtime. All right. <laughs> of course it is. No, we're just starting. <laughs> so I do have an intro for this, Jacob. Mm, you're not getting tribal. I see. I see how it is. <laughs> so this is probably going to be the last thing that Jake ever does an intro for. We'll see. What? Yep. Yeah, All probably. Right. Here we go. <laughs> In December of 1967, 
the silver bridge connecting Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and Galapagos, Ohio, collapsed into the icy waters of the Ohio River. And among other things, the mystery of the Mothman was thrown into the limelight and became one of the darling poster children of cryptozoology and urban legends. In 1909, just east of the land of Mothman, the Snallygaster came into the scene in the mountains of western Maryland. Stories crawled through the hollers and hills of the northern Appalachians. Of this flying phenomenon and its tendencies to pick up full-grown men and drain them of their blood before tossing the empty bodies back to the earth. And before that, in January of the same year, just to the north, in the desolate Pine Barrens of New Jersey, a devil was loose and tore through the nightmares of boondock pineys and city folk alike. Things got so bad that work and school shut down from January 16th to 22nd due to the drastic increase of devil encounters. But before the moth, Snally, and JD, there was another notorious terror of the night, one that began its reign six years before the likes of any other heavyweight airborne cryptid. Time to step back in time, travelers, back to 1903, in mid-autumn, to a town of just a thousand souls just outside of Des Moines, Iowa. A visitor is about to make their presence known in Van Meter. Welcome back to Infinite Rabbit Hole. Kind of stumbled so, over my words there at the end, but whatever. So this isn't a Jersey Devil episode. <laughs> this is this is not a Jersey Devil episode. Although you know, uh, you guys will learn pretty quick. But this is another aerial cryptid. Um, this is a very unique story. This is one that can be debated. This is not something that's just a story, uh, because there are holes in it. But I mean, this comes. Back from 1903, so of course there's going to be some holes in it, right? Because by now, you know, the game of telephone probably changed this legend from what it really was to something drastically different. But I'm going to give you what I found. What All type right? of holes are we talking about here? Like big old gaping holes or little tiny holes? Uh, I wouldn't say it's a gaper, but yeah. <laughs> gaper. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. <clears throat> Any questions before we get started? Nope. No. All right. Visitor of Van Meter. In the book, The Van Meter Visitor by Chad Lewis, Noah Voss, and Kevin Lee Nelson, the men make mention of an article from 1903 titled Des Moines New Monster and quoted the article as stating, quote, two weird-looking terror-striking stri monsters are living in an abandoned coal mine on the edge of town. The abandoned coal mine the article was referring to was the old Van Meter coal mine, which in 1879 was sold to the Chicago Coal Company. They used to provide the town of Tracy's nat natural resources to entities such as the Rock Island Railroad Company. This, along with the popular clay brick and tile factory, which used clay from nearby areas in the coal mine itself, made the small town of Tracy a popular hub for labor by the turn of the 20th century. All of this was thanks to a very important pioneer by the name of J.R. Van Meter, in which the town eventually changed his name to to pay homage. 
As many people made their way into the U.S. and across the Midwest, more and more people began settling in the newly named named town of Van Meter, Iowa. As these newcomers settled not only in Van Meter, but throughout the entire state, supernatural beliefs and lore came with them. Both before and after the visitor terrified the people of Van Meter, stories of werewolves, wild men, water monsters, ghosts, and self-illuminating illuminated orbs were detailed by many who called this state home. Although many of these stories have some documentation to them, none of them have been reported in such a way that rivals the Van Meter visitor, a flying monster said to be living in the abandoned coal mine in town. All right. Y'all ready to get visited? Yeah, man. <laughs> Ooh, you're going to get so visited. Just not probed, all right? No. No, you're going to wish you got probed. <laughs> all right. Let's start diving into the first events. <clears throat> UG Griffith was walking home at 1 a.m. Tuesday, September 29th, 1903. After a long day at work at his tool and seed store in Van Meter, Iowa, as Mr. Griffith was approached, uh, as Mr. Griffith approached the Mather and Greggs building in town as part of his normal route home, his attention was drawn to the top of the building where there stood a light that he had never seen before. His first thoughts were that the building was being robbed and began to move closer to get a better view. But as he approached the building, the light quickly floated away from the Mather and Greg and was now stalled on top of another building across the street. And as quick as it took to move to the other building, the light disappeared. Mr. Griffith didn't have to worry about robbers anymore. Griffith finished his walk home and fell asleep. The next morning, he, who was a very respected member of the town who held a seat on the village council and belonged to two very respected clubs began telling all that would listen about his encounter the night prior with a mysterious light. A few newspapers picked up on the story and would publish the next day a report of Griffith's, Griffith's encounter, but little was made of it in a public manner the rest of the first or second day. Dr. Alcott went to sleep the night of the 29th. The very next day in a small room behind the office in which he in his practice and dozed off to the sound of light rain just shy of 1 a.m wednesday morning he was awoken by an extremely bright light shining in his face the pudgy little man jumped up out of bed and grabbed his gun and ran outside to confront those that were torturing his sleep as dr alcott turned the corner outside of his doctor's office he came face to face with a creature that he could never he could have never created in his nightmares. A half-man, half-animal, as Alcott later described, stood in front of him with large bat-like wings and a blunt horn coming out of the middle of his forehead. But the light, now the light was intense and was originating out from the small protrusion on his face, and Dr. Alcott raised his revolver and fired five shots into the creature, which seemed to not affect it in the slightest. So he turned tail and ran back into his office locked doors and windows, and hunkered in until daybreak. As the sun rose on, on Wednesday, September 30th, 1903, in Van Meter, Iowa, Dr. Alcott began telling his story to a select few men, and before long the story had been the talk of the town, and nobody looked at the two encounters as being caused by the same entity. Yet, in the very early morning hours the next day, Clarence Dunn was on his way to the bank, that he worked at as a teller and would one day manage. 
He was one of the only or one of a very few people in the town that saw the two stories of strange lights being possibly connected, and it was his concern that there were robbers about. So he headed to the bank to guard it for the night. Shotgun in hand, around 1 a.m., Mr. Dunn finally arrived and began his long night guarding the source of income that kept his family alive. A strange gurgling sound arose from arose him from his chair before an intense light illuminated him from the window at the front of the bank. The light swept around the room and snapped back to Clarence as he was raising his shotgun. The light settled on him once again as he pulled the trigger, shattering the glass, and the creature was gone once again. According to Mr. Dunn, he shot it perfectly, and there was no way that he missed. In the morning light, the only evidence that anything was there was a shattered glass outside of the bank and a few three-toe tracks that thankfully Mr. Dunn casted in plaster. That night, O.V. White was asleep above the Fisher and White hardware and furniture store that he co-owned when he was shocked awake by an intense sound right outside of his second-story quarters. On Main Street, he grabbed his gun as he had heard the rumors around town of a creature on the loose and went to his window to see what was making the incredible sound. As he opened the window, the sound stopped. Mr. White looked through the drizzling, the drizzle falling on the street below him. As he began to look around, he noticed a dark figure standing on the cross-section of a telephone pole across the street. And immediately, Mr. White believed he knew that the culprit was perched at a height that was unbelievable for something so big to be at. O.V. White took aim and fired around directly at the creature. A shot that he described as an ordinary good shot, but the creature didn't fall. Instead, it turned around and shined the most incredible light directly at Mr. White, and whatever it was seemed to emit a smell that was so strong that White reported that it confused him and he lost track of what was happening. The same shot rang out throughout town and awakened his neighbor, Sidney Gray. Mr. Or Sidney Gregg, sorry. Mr. Gregg ran to his front door, which faced out to, to Main Street, and was shocked at the sight of a very large creature with long wings making its way down the telephone pole in a way that reminded him of a parrot descending a pole in its cage. The creature held its body horizontal to the ground and climbed down one foot after the other while using its large beak to make a constant three points of contact. Mr. Gregg described it as almost eight feet tall with a very large beak and a light as bright as an electric headlamp emanating from its forehead. Both men described an incredible stench after it began moving from its perch. Sidney Gregg heard the loud sound of the oncoming train that brought the Daily Mail, and as if the creature had never heard a sound like that before, it dropped low to the ground as if startled by the rivalry noise. Mr. Gregg, only 15 feet away from the creature, watched as it took large leaps before dropping to all fours and running until it eventually took flight towards the abandoned coal mine in town. That was the last time anyone saw the creature that night. All right, guys. So what do you guys think about the first three days? Four days. Four days. Back, uh, back to back to back events. The first thing I think of is the Thunderbird or a very large bat. Because either that- way, either way, the light, I believe that the light shining into their eyes would cause a massive reflection if their eyes were big enough. So... 
the way that these these encounters read, and one of the telltale signs of the Van Meter Visitor is a self-illuminating light, uh, where mm. the light comes from the creature itself. That's just, you know, we, we've discussed this before. I don't think there is a single animal on the face of the earth that we know of. I mean, let's preface this, that we know of that has light that actually shines from its eyes. So Whoa. it doesn't come from his eyes. It comes from a, a spot on his forehead. That's no. not true either. There are bioluminescent animals and like the anglerfish. There, mm-hmm. There's there's things. Maybe they don't that. shine a light like a flashlight or like a laser beam, but doesn't mean that it couldn't happen if you had i could I see that being biologically possible is what i'm what i'm getting at i i tackle this with an idea i have later <laughs> on we'll we'll get back into that in a minute because i know that like when you hear this story of the van meter visitor that's the first thing that pops in your head is is that damn light if if that light wasn't there this could be a number of things like jake was saying right um one thing i don't go into is thunderbird i just I, for one, don't think it's a Thunderbird whatsoever, uh, but there are a lot of other options that it could possibly be. It was just that idea of it going down the pole like that. I could totally picture it and be like, that sounds like a big bird. Yeah. But no, Jeff, I meant like from its eyeballs, because that's always what we hear is that their eyes were glowing, because eyes are made to take in light, not project right, I light. I see man. Like, if it was um, like some nocturnal creature. Not a bioluminescence, bad. like, of course, we see in plants, we see in some animals, like, generally fish deep underwater and stuff like that, where there is no light. They create bioluminescence, but it was the eyes I was referring to. But the light on top of the head, though, hmm. I don't know. I'm digging the story, though, so far. It is a good story. Van Meter Visitor is a classic. I kind uh, of especially feel the like, second part. I kind of feel like in 1903 in Des Moines, Iowa, there's probably some bullshit stories. <laughs> there might be. There might be. You know, we, but the we, whole like, town, the whole well, town. You know, the thing is, it starts with one. It starts with yeah. one, right? Guys mm-hmm. at the bar, or whatever, right? And he's like, "Yeah, man." And then somebody hears it, and like, there's nothing going on in Des Moines, Iowa now. In 2023, <laughs> so in 03, what's happening there? So of course, like the next guy is going to want to be in on it somehow. Like, oh, it happened to me too, man. Yeah. Oh, and I got a cast of the foot too, dude. Yeah. Like, okay. It pulled down my That's pants and showed me what was what. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Tasted gray. No, that's what I latched on to was the casting. I want to see the casting of this foot. Yeah, so. True. Let's talk about this cast because Please. it no longer exists. Ah, how yes. uh, appropriate. How appropriate. Okay. One thing uh, we could talk about this because I actually didn't mention this throughout my presentation here, uh, which is pretty critical to know. Uh, there's two things that are wrong with the cast from 1903 in Van Meter, Iowa. One, the caster that they, the cast, the casting plaster that they used was uh, it was kind of gooey. It wasn't solidified like it is now. Like we add salt to ours now. Never mm-hmm. used to do that. Uh, so it became very, very brittle. And it wasn't something that was meant to stay as a cast for a very long time. They just didn't last. Also, a few years later, I, I want to say it was by 1910. Uh, Almost the entire town burned down. Hmm. 
Um, so if this cast did exist and was in that town, there's a good possibility that even if it was real, that it's that it wouldn't be around today. Were there at least photographs taken of it? In 1903? I don't even know if the camera existed. I tried, I tried Googling it. All I got was artist renditions of what the cryptid is supposed to look like. No actual foot castings or pictures of said casting. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, when I put this video on YouTube, uh, I am going to plaster it with some of these artist renditions of this thing. I think the they're awesome. <laughs> it's, this this creature is so intense, and like if you look at some of these some of these pictures, Jake, I think especially you because you spent a lot of time playing Ark with me, uh, you're gonna get some ideas of what this it looks like. An Argentavis? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it actually looks like a Quetzal or a Pteranodon. So, so you might be talking about the other version of the Thunderbird, which is more like there's a. Uh... A big flying reptile out there, right now. Mm. That you know, if you if you look at or if you listen to the description that comes off of this thing, bat-like wings stands out. Yeah, right. Um, and that reminds me of a pteranodon, something yeah. from that family. But I get into that too, so I don't want to dive too much into that. You guys ready to move on? And could have they been nighttime <laughs> hunters with bioluminescence? I say that in my. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. I have a question about this town burning down. Do you go into that? I don't. No. Uh, because that that was a separate incident than the Van Meter visitor completely. So I don't talk about it. Although the book that I did read, uh, which I stated the title was Van Meter Visitor by uh, three different people. I don't have. Well, it's just interesting because it's around the same time that all the world's fairs were being brought around and burned down and all of history was being erased. So I wonder if that town was burned down on purpose to erase some shit that might have actually been going down. Maybe. Good possibility. That is interesting that you said that. Uh, but the book is by Lewis Foss and Nelson. It's a great book. Uh, I actually, from the same... The same authors did the Windigo book that I did the Windigo episodes off of. Kid. Cool. You guys ready? Um, and oh. just to just to um, answer your question, yes, photography was around in 1901. That giant mound of buffalo skulls and stuff where the people are standing in front of it, that was taken in 1880. Um, okay. Although it would have been very expensive. Yeah. So probably so it, it, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Hey, let me let me pay a quick thousand dollars to have this picture taken. Like <laughs> shit. Take a, picture, well, take a picture of this cast. All right, Jeff, you ready? Real. Okay, good. Jeff left everybody. He just walks away. That's what he does. All right. He's gonna miss some of the story. I'm not catching him up. All right. Next bit. The townsfolk's last stand. The town woke up to terror as yet another sighting of the creature was made last night. And not just any sighting. Sidney Gregg was 15, away, 15 feet away from it and had a perfect view of the thing, while Mr. White shot it again before it emitted a terrible odor and ran off towards the coal mine. People were now connecting the three events that all happened in... Th I, I say three, it's four. I do apologize. Four events that all happened in four consecutive nights. You had... The light on top of the building, 
You had the doctor who came around his building and uh, fired five shots into it. You have the bank teller who shot it through a window with a shotgun. And then you have uh, Mr. White and Mr. Greg's story where it came down the telephone pole in like the, the scariest fucking way that anything could come down a fucking telephone pole. I'd be, I'd be like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to go back to bed. Um, <clears throat> People were now connecting the four events that all happened in four consecutive nights by four different or five different important men in the town. This thing was big. It was loud. It flew and somehow it was able to shine in an incredible light, which gave it the upper hand in the nighttime. When it had visited Van Meter, a local high school teacher reported as only named Professor Martin said that the creature was most likely antediluvian, antediluvian, which means from, yeah, that's what I said, which means from a time before the Great Flood, but nobody knew for sure exactly what it was and why it was here. The evening of Friday, October 2nd was a long one. Everybody was on alert due to the reports and men who worked at the factory and brick plant in the same area reported sounds coming from deep within the shafts. One description of the sounds were as, quote, though Satan and a regiment of imps were coming forth for a battle. J.L. Platt Jr. was the plant manager at this factory and was a very seasoned worker of both the mine and the brickworks. The sounds emanating from the hollows of the voids that were the old abandoned mine shaft just 600 feet away from the building he was now in charge of were terrifying to all the men who were, who were working that night. Mr. Platt grew curious and approached the entrance to the mine and was shocked to witness the winged monstrosity along with a slightly smaller one as well. He described both creatures as having the bright light that others had reported and came extremely close to them as they took flight directly over his position. All of the men working that night at various distances between Mr. Platt's position and the plant only 600 feet away saw them as they flew off into the darkness of night. The reports didn't wait until morning. The men knew what they had to do, so they went back to town and gathered all the men and their firearms. On the way out, all of the lights were turned on in town to provide some sort of comfort and protection for the younger men, children, and women of Van Meter. If those things came back to the mine tonight, they would be met by a chorus of shots fired by every man in town. The night was not as exciting as everyone had hoped. The men waited until daybreak for the creature. And in the last moments of daylight, the two huge flying terrors were spotted heading back to the mouth of the mine. The entire mob of men with their firearms took aim and fired in volley that was heard by and frightened those in town. As the creatures flew closer, another horrific smell permeated the area, and many men could not take the smell and quit firing. But it made no difference because even with the dozens or hundreds of shots fired, the creatures flew lazily by the men guarding the mouth of the mine as if they weren't even there. A new terror struck them all. Not everyone was convinced that these creatures even existed. And if they did, the reported shots would have had to to have been off and not actually hit the creature. But there was no question any longer. They were here and bullets did absolutely nothing to them. That was the last reported sighting of the mysterious large flying monster with a natural spotlight on its forehead. All of this information originally came from articles published by the Des Moines 
daily news and, and was brilliantly recaptured in the Van Meter Visitor, a book by Chad Lewis, Noah Voss, and Kevin Lee Nelson. Many mysteries still exist about the origins and the eventual end of this mysterious monster. Some say that the townspeople boarded up the old mine shaft and blocked them in until they starved and died. Their bones eternally lost to time and the concoction of fumes produced by such a mine. Some say that the creatures flew out and away after the onslaught by the myriad of bullets fired at them during that last stand by the men of Van Meter. Or maybe they're still out there. Alright, so that's it. That is everything. The rest of the episode is all dissection. Okay, we're going to dive into possibilities, and we're going to go way down the rabbit hole with this one. So, unlike what Jeff will tell you, that dinosaurs never existed. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm just teasing. But truthfully, we don't know, because we only have bones, right, what these animals because i mean i looked up the images too they look exactly like pterodons but yeah. of course that's artist renditions going off yeah. of something that we already believe to know existed right um but we don't know what their skin makeup was we don't know if they had some sort of a scent gland where they could put off this disgusting odor right we don't know if they had um i don't know very thick skin right like you got to imagine there's no, there would probably not be any real protection on them. Granted, they'd have to be light to fly around unless their bones were very dense. Um, but I don't think that's the case. But the, we, we don't know any of that stuff. We don't know if they created bioluminescence. We don't know, you know, even what color they were. You know, some people even say, oh, well, the dinosaurs had feathers. And turns out that was a lie, too, <laughs> because, you know, that that original fossil was a fake. But, uh it's just there's so much stuff we don't know about the dinosaurs because the only thing we have is their bones. And even the question remains for some of them being so big, how did, you know, their bones take the weight of them as, you know, full grown adults? How did they mate like that? The best explanation I've gotten for that one is that they bred when they were young. Once they got too big, I mean, they couldn't possibly lift themselves up in order to breed with each other, even like lizards do. So, you know, they probably did that as, you know, as smaller, younger dinosaurs. But there's so many things that is just unknown about them. So if, in fact, there were pterodons that maybe still inhabit the Earth in, to some degree or another in some places, you know, which, could they have a spotlight shine out of their foreheads? Sure, why not? You know, <laughs> because we right. have no clue. You know, sure. they could be purple with pink spots. We have no idea. Probably not. But, you know, it's just like, could they be sky blue? I don't know, right? And so it's just like so many different things. Um, I am not above thinking that to a degree, you know, some of these dinosaurs you know, still exist around the earth, you know, in very small populations or maybe in large populations, but in very remote areas where maybe the tribes people that live there, or the, you know, just the population itself doesn't want to expose that these things happen because what's going to happen? All the world scientists are going to show up there at their doorstep. So, you know, I, I think that this is a very interesting story and I am not quick to say this is all baloney. Nice. Anybody else? I don't know, bro. So is there anybody, is there any 
documentation of interviews from these people who had these sightings, or is this all just based off of the newspaper articles of the time? Just newspaper articles of the time, man. That's it. This was a very, very small area. This was not a very big area. Uh, the whole that whole that whole section of the country was underdeveloped. Uh, it was blue collar as blue collar gets. Like if you lived in the town, you worked in the mine. It was as simple as that. Here's the the problem is like that geographical location in my mind is hard for creatures like that to have existed unknown going back thousands of years right if they've somehow survived you know like i've been to iowa there's not a whole lot of places to hide a lot of corn but you believe in the hollow earth and they're miners could they have cracked open a hole and these things escaped from it yes that's that ran through my mind too that i mean that's always a theory right every episode no matter what we're talking about it's always comes down to like well maybe in the hollow earth or maybe in the ocean right sure some connection there so yeah but also we're in the middle of bumfuck nowhere with in the middle of like an era when there's not shit going on right so so let me uh i'm spit out another little fact that i did not include here one thing is that they did not publicize this like the town like if you go to any other cryptid town, Mothman, Loveland Frogman, Snallygaster, Jersey Devil, you have festivals, man. Every year, annual festivals. The first annual festival of this was like five years ago. They had to be convinced. An outsider had to come and convince them to do something for their monster. Like these people just they didn't they didn't market it. I mean, well, who's- I'm not. I'm not saying it was done for that reason. I mean, it very well could have just been as simple as like somebody working at the newspaper was like, Hey, this is a fun story. Yeah. Right. We publish one. And then next thing you know, the guy at the bar is like, I seen it. Right. right. I shot the motherfucker, man. He, he took now, my <laughs> now I will say, I will say just to kind of give you a little bit of a, uh, uh, a warm heart here. Right. This book does reference the almanacs. Not the almanacs, the uh, not the fucking almanacs. What the hell am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Newspapers. No, I was tracking, and then you just the fucking uh, what's the thing we population survey? The thing, you the know, census. the census. The census. The, the it, so <laughs> the, the, the almanac. Jeez, what an idiot! <laughs> oh my! What an idiot! Um, but. The uh, the census from those times, these people existed. So these people lived in Van Meter, right? So how yeah. would a uh, somebody from Des Moines even know all of these people that lived in Van Meter? I mean, that's less of a stretch than, yo, some, you know... That, that, that he got it all from the almanac, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm old saying, Biff, Biff in the again, almanac. I'm on the fence, dude. I'm not saying this is not Oh, good, 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 good. Good. You know, I just, there's a lot of room for me to be like, you know what, man? They probably made this shit up. <laughs> I I agree. And that that's one of the biggest things with the Van Meter Visitor is, you know, a lot of this stuff, there's like a lot of things that make sense here. Like when you talk about the biology of this creature, the only thing that doesn't work is the fucking light on its head. That's the only thing that doesn't work. 
Like I'll get it. We're going to dive into some more stuff here. I'm going to dive into some of the possibilities of what this thing could be. Uh, some more of the background of, of the town and, and whatnot. Um, and I think I'm going to open your minds up a little bit. Maybe it was just one. And it, they have that big old horn that comes out of the top of their head to some degree. And it just got a, uh, <laughs> it got a, a lantern from the cave tr- stuck on its head. And so it was looking at people and it had this lantern on and they were like, the light of death. Yeah. <laughs> that's just funny. Meanwhile, it's just trying to ask for some help. Get this yeah. thing off my head. <laughs> and I live in the hall so that's why whatnot. my skin stinks like mold. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Let's uh, let's move along. So what was it? In the book by Lewis, Voss, and Nelson... Noah Voss takes the lead in Chapter 7, in which he outlines a list he compiled of possible other sightings of the creature. Through the process, he eliminates known and unknown creatures that share less than three similarities with the Van Meter Visitor. Some of these similarities are physical, such as the huge size, giant bat-like wings, or a light self-illuminated from its body. Some were mannerisms, such as using its beak to descend off a tree-like structure, fly at times between midnight and daybreak, and some other of these characteristics were based off of non-physical similarities, such as the disgusting odor or the preference for choosing old mines as its home. Voss begins his list by detailing the story of the Lake Elizabeth area sighting that described a flying alligator with six legs in Lake Elizabeth, California, near the early 1800s. He then goes into outlining the Snallygaster from Maryland, in which he did an entire, unless we did an entire episode covering said creature. Old Snally was very large, had a horrific sound, lived in caves and mines in the Appalachian areas of Maryland and neighboring states, as well as mostly sighted at night. Could these be different descriptions of the same species of creature? After the Snallygaster, Voss then dives into the Jersey Devil. And if you haven't heard our coverage of JD yet, I'm going to feel personally attacked as the two-part episode is one of my absolute favorites I've ever done for the show. Uh, But the last comparison Noah Voss uses is one that I wish there was more context on because I love the legend. The Stansbury Island creature. Stansbury Island is the second largest island in Utah's Great Salt Lake, slightly over a thousand miles away and only about three weeks Earlier than the incident in Van Meter, the Stansbury Island creature was spotted and studied by Martin Gilbert and John Barry for three days. They described it as half bird and half reptile. The two hunters said it had the head of an alligator, the wings of a bat, covered in scales, and had fiercely glowing eyes. The men witnessed the creature taking full-grown horses into a nearby cave as they listened to the screams of death as it devoured its victims. This, of course, is very interesting, is a very interesting event when it comes to the time frame and the distance away from Van Meter, Iowa, both of which I was not fully aware of before reading Lewis Voss and Nelson's book. Another thing that may seem important to some is that this island is only a three hour drive to Skinwalker Ranch. Personally, I find this very interesting as this place has been known for portals to other dimensions. Then you take physical descriptions and habits such as choosing to live in a cave, which when compared to a mine, it is easy to see the similarities. Out of the four options Voss lays out in this book, I think this is the most probable to have been have been another creature with a famous visitor of Van Meter in another location. 
Now, to move on to other possibilities that were not pointed out in this book, there are a few options that come to mind immediately, in my opinion, those being Mothman and a Pteranodon of some sorts. Let's start with Mothman. Now, this one might, might be a stretch that I admit, but not looking at it, even briefly, is not good for a researcher's studies. When we take Voss's comparative, comparative views into consideration, Mothman has large wings, half-man, half-creature, self-illuminating eyes, and is commonly believed to have made the famous TNT site its home. Now, the eyes of Mothman are said to be red, but does that mean that every creature, like the Van Meter Visitor, has to have a white light? There are tons of species here on Earth that come in different colors, shapes, and sizes to others in their family. Could this not apply to these creatures as well? I'll admit, seems like a stretch, but I would check. I wouldn't check Mothman off the list of prelimin with the preliminary information. Sorry, guys, I can't read today. The next is the Pteranodon, but let's not get caught up directly to the Pteranodon itself. There may there were many different flying reptiles in the age of the dinos. But specifically, I would like to look at the order of reptiles known as Pterosauria. Among these extinct fl flying reptiles are the plenty of subclasses of Pteranodons, Quetzals, Dimorphs, and Tropios that would fit the description of the Van Meter Visitor to a T if it were not for the self-illuminating light coming out of its forehead. Long beaks, extreme bulk, when referencing to us, blunt horns on their forearms, known as crests, our foreheads, known as crests, vocals, thought to sound like a loud scream, and the reptilian body all have me thinking, what if these, these flying reptiles had self-illuminating lights coming out of their forehead? Could we really eliminate that as a possibility? Lastly, let's dive into the old forgotten rundown coal mine that was the hub of two decades prior to the visitor's visit. I know it is a little bit science fiction-y, but what if a creature long lost to the undergrounds of the earth were trapped away underground in large caverns? One way it would adapt for survival would be to create a form of bioluminescence, just like the life forms at the bottom of the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean. What if a population of Pteranodon were, were to be caught underground for centuries? Would they not smell like the sulfur that is found uh, around and in natural deposits of coal? Yes, it's a bit science fiction-y, as I said, but can we really count it out? No, we can't. I think that's my favorite, favorite theory of them all. What, the last one? Yeah, I'm jiving with that one the most. Yeah? That just seems like the most entertaining and coolest one to me. All my own. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Jeff, you look like you're thinking. He's thinking. Yeah, sorry. Thinking, listening, multitasking, browsing. I don't know, man. The only thing it really it seems like the the bioluminescent thing is like the thing that's the most impossible, but it's really not, I guess, the more I think about it. I've I just seen. it depends on how strong, right? Bioluminescence in creatures that are not in the deepest parts of the ocean are not that bright, you know, and it's mostly used as a warning, not necessarily used for an offensive thing, more right. of a defensive thing. Well, my, I'm kind of thinking that, but also like what Jake brought up, right? If it's in a mine, they could have accidentally opened up 
into a cavern system, right? That's just been cut off from the surface forever, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, it's possible that something existed down there and it has some form of bioluminescence that we're just not aware of, you know, and it's some weird reptile or, you know, mammal creature of some, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Still think it's probably bullshit. <laughs> I yeah I I agree actually, I, but I think you know to what Jeremy said. You know we see these fish at the bottom of the ocean and stuff, and the the bioluminescence isn't you know amazingly strong, but in an area where there's absolutely no light, it's like a it's like a star sticker on a on a young kid's ceiling where it you know it glows right. in the dark and stuff like that. If you turn on the lights, it's still glowing. It's just not very you can't really even see it until you completely shut out all the lights and then you could put pick it out in a room. It's the brightest thing, right? Um, obviously. But I mean, maybe that there's a, a reason why this thing was seen at night and it was noticed that it had this big glowing spot on its head maybe it was for you know defensive situations or something like that not necessarily so that it could see and that would also make sense why you know the maybe i just kind of zoned out but i think jeremy you said that all the incidences happened at night yes so it's nocturnal because that's what it's used to maybe the light in the daytime is too bright for it um so it acts like most uh animals that lives live in caves right where it comes out at night specifically bats right in this circumstance but um yeah i mean I, especially in 1901 and 1903 and all those 1900s it's not like they had you know city lights like we do where you have all kinds of um what's it called when you're trying to look at the stars and it's all you know deafened by how bright it is Light stuff. pollution. The light pollution, thank you. So, you know, it would have been more or less the sun's going down, it's time to go to bed. You know, maybe we have a couple lights on in the house or something like that. I don't really know when the popularity of electricity kind of came full swing to where smaller towns like that would have had electricity. Um, but yeah, I mean, but I'm sure it was expensive and all kinds of stuff. So I mean, I I don't know. It's it's lining up for me, man. It's not still not striking a uh, a huge blow to anything that i i stand behind and even still the the topic of hollow earth you know what i just found out recently which i probably mm. should have known already um during the biblical flood where did the water come from Jeff the oceans knows. under the ground that's it it came from underground the earth cracked open and the floodwaters came from underground it was raining for 40 days but the wa floodwaters came from underground. So then what populated those hollow voids? Or is there more to that? And it was just like, you know, the rivers and lakes and oceans underground. So even still, I think that this is awesome. <laughs> I think this is a cool topic, you know, because this is most of the cryptids we talk about with the exception of like Bigfoot. I'm just like, this is ridiculous. This is crap, you know, all this sort of stuff. This one's the most likely in my mind that it could be a thing especially since it's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that it's not the jersey devil where it's like multiple <laughs> things combined to one it's not the moth man it's not all these sorts of things it in my mind has a pretty 
good description of it. And, you know, maybe the description was off. It's not a beam of light. It was just a spot of light. But even still, that would have been incredibly weird, even today, to see an animal that would have something like that. You know, some form of bioluminescence. If it was glowing or projecting light, you know, you might say it was the same thing because I guess glowing could be projecting light, but maybe not a spotlight. All right. I think there, we're good. I was just going to say there's over a thousand caves in Iowa, apparently, too. So, yeah. I mean, it was known for its coal mining, man. I'm, um, I'm digging the hollow earth idea, too. I would not. Again, like there's, I think we've mentioned it on the show before. Jeff brought it up. There's ray stingrays and whatnot that come from these underground oceans and mm-hmm. through different caverns and whatnot. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's something in a cave too. Be pretty cool. So here goes the question: Do we want to make this a long episode, or do we want to make it two? We want to make it two because we're going to record them both tonight. Then. Whoa, hold on, bro. <laughs> I, I got I got three pages left. We can make this a long, a long episode. episode then. All right. Here yeah. we go. Ready? Yeah. All right. How long are we talk? Okay. All right. All right, Jeffrey. <clears throat> All right. Rebuttals. On October 5th, 1903, an article was ran by the Des Moines Daily News, the same paper that ran the articles by H.H. Phillips covering the events in Van Meter. In his new article that came out a day later than Phillips' last article, an anonymous freelance writer submitted a rebuttal piece to the newspaper. In this short writing, the author describes how Phillips over-exaggerated the claims of what was happening in Van Meter. The author did, however, admit that there were lights and strange noises scaring the crap out of people, and Mr. Dunn did shoot the window out of the bank after being startled while on guard, but all these issues were being caused by some sort of robber or prankster. Now let's look at this for a minute. I would assume that whoever wrote this was from Van Meter, that I do believe. But to think this was all done by a person or group of people who planned on committing nefarious acts might be a stretch. If this was someone out to take advantage of the town, then they sure got shot at a lot. This seems to be true as the mysterious author did mention the use of guns. You would think that after the first few, they would get the hint. When you take this into consideration and then add that that when Mr. Dunn fired his shotgun point plank out the window at a figure shining a light at him, and how there was no signs of injury to be found the next day, I start to feel less convinced. I mean, have you ever seen a human bleed? We bleed a lot, and it doesn't take much. You would think that anyone on the other side of that window pane that just got blasted by a shotgun would have a minimum been cut by glass. The signs of blood droplets would be noticeable. A day later, another article was published, but this time in the Des Moines Daily Capital stating again that this was a hoax brought on by Phillips. Now, after reading this article, I would say this is more an article from the viewpoint outside of Van Meter than that is writing to dismiss what they feel is crazy and unbelievable nonsense. The opinion by many is that these two articles are from the same author, but I honestly disagree. The writing style is different. The mannerisms used vary. And the viewpoint certainly does not seem like it came from someone inside Ground Zero. Personally, I do not put a lot of weight into these articles. You may, but I don't. 
I witness people every day unable to see the truth, even if it's right in front of their eyes. The first article could have been written by a person from Van Meter that stayed in their house during these three days, or someone who was a hermit. Believe it or not, this happens. Some people just don't talk to other people and miss out on news from the community. Both a good thing and a bad thing, depending on what specifically is being talked about. And some people remain oblivious to everything going on. All right, guys. So what do you guys think about the two articles? I'm not Mm. a fan. It sounds like just not... I was going to say hate speech. It doesn't sound like hate speech. It sounds like um, just hating on the story. Yeah. Just like someone who would just be like, this is dumb. This didn't happen, you know. People do that shit, too. And... Like I read the articles. The book has the articles in it. I didn't want to read the whole articles. Jeff would freaking die of exhaustion by the time I was done with them. <laughs> so summarizing it, the first one sounds like it came from somebody in Van Meter. Like they were able to uh, talk about certain things, certain events, and go a little bit more into detail about those events. Um, none of which like really took away from the fact that this could be a creature. I think mm. that this was a situation where that person was just used to having people come into town that were a little shady and, you know, uh, bank robberies and the old wild, wild west was probably still a thing back there in 1903. Uh, so I think that's just, you know, somebody was comfortable with the idea of this not being some crazy, creepy monster. And then the other article was just fucking useless. It was <laughs> it was absolutely stupid. It was so, it, definitely not somebody from Van Meter. So basically, the first one could have been. You know, someone trying to put the story to bed so that people would stop coming over and trying to investigate themselves. That's true, too. That could that could be there could have been a good chunk of people that wanted to go over there with guns, wanting to kill themselves a monster. I thought it was just the guy trying to write the story away and easily explain it somehow. Hmm. I like I like Jake's point of view. I didn't think of that. That, that could definitely have been the reason. What do you think, Jeff? You hate this story, don't you? No, I don't hate the story. It's just like this part in particular is just (laughs) like, it's like, let's write an article. Let's, let's do a podcast about an article. That's about an article. Okay. I get it. I get it. You see what I'm saying? (laughs) What did you call these cryptids the other day? Pokemon? Pokemon, You're doing another Pokemon episode. I'll just sit out. You fucker. <laughs> he would rather do a an episode on a paper reporting on a research paper that someone did that we have no idea who the, who it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No big deal. Same stuff, but you know, different. Same, same, but different. Same, yeah, same, same, but different. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just saying. We, I'm sure we could put a thousand articles. Maybe not about this particular op, uh, situation, but I'm sure we could find a thousand articles about a thousand articles. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Let's get Jeff to bed. He's getting cranky. (laughs) I love you, Jeff. You're good people. Poor Jeffrey. All right, misidentification of known animals. The first thing that comes to mind as a person who believes in Occam's razor is that this was a simple case of misidentification. But hold on. It's not that easy. What do we know about this creature that we haven't already gone over? How about the way it moves? If we look at two moments in these encounters with the visitor, we see two very specific forms of motion. The way it came down the telephone pole like a parrot, and the way it ran on all fours before flying away. Let's look at the former first. 
There is nothing the size reported for the creature from Van Meter in the present world that uses its mouth to climb down a pole or tree. Or anything. The parrot does. But they dwarf this beast incredibly. And I would find it very hard for anyone to misidentify an 8 to 12 inch parrot with an 8 foot Van Meter visitor. So let's look at the ladder. The, the way it moved. Now only one person saw this thing take off after getting down from the pole, and that was Sidney Gregg. Now, remember, Mr. White saw it on the pole, but after the smell arrived, he was battling other issues and couldn't focus. But let's first assume that Mr. Gregg was right, and it did run on all fours. My first question would be, were the arms attached to the wing, like that of a bat, or were these separate appendages, completely independent of wings? Animals with wings and four appendages do not exist that we know of, the only way they do is in very small flying lizards, which don't fly, but rather glide, and in the world of dragons and griffins. So, biologically, I don't think that would be the case. So let's look at animals that have their arms and wings combined, like birds and bats. Then, let's see who runs on all fours, and we are left with bats. Birds just don't use their wings as a tool for ground movement. But is there a bat that can fit into the other characteristics of the Van Meter visitor? No, there just isn't. They are either too small, furry, no light illuminating from their head, and they don't use their mouth as a way to get down telephone poles. So my answer to this question, could this be a case of misidentification of a known animal? Is simply just no. My only argument is there are bats with wingspans up to six feet. And there could have been a, maybe a bigger bat at that time. So do you know the rule of but winged creatures? Know do you no, know the rule of winged really. creatures? So if this thing was standing eight feet tall, like uh, Mr. Greg was saying that it stood, it's its wing size could have easily been 30 feet. Oh, yeah, that that I understand. Excuse me. Sorry, that I understand. But like, I'm just saying maybe it was a bat species that was around then that isn't around now that we didn't know about maybe that was just doing some weird shit on the telephone pole it it did say that this was you know the high school teacher did say that this was probably an animal that was from before that was pre-flood and you know as far as we know there was megafauna pre-flood um so could there have been bats that were much much bigger i mean sure but at the same time, I think that they would be pretty much like the bats we have now, which still, the bats we have now don't really run on all fours. Um, their joints aren't really shaped that way in their legs. Um, but even still, I mean, I think maybe some of them stand. I, I'm not 100% sure on this. I've seen some pictures of like oh. the flying foxes that Kenzar was talking about. So I actually watched a ton of videos about bats motion on ground. Yeah. A lot of them, a lot of them, if not all of the ones I saw move just like a wyvern would like from arc. Really? I mean, it's like, oh yeah, that that's okay. where, that's where arc got that movement from. No doubt. Okay. Um, but my killer for bats one, they don't have a long ass beak like this thing did. Everybody who saw it. Right. Basically, uh, described it as having a very large beak or snout or whatever it right. is they use they have like these flat faces now you have that fox bat you know the really big one 
yeah, uh, yeah. I don't I don't know its exact name, but the face looks like a fox and it's got a little bit of a snout. That's the only one, but I mean, even then, it's only like four inches. It's not long. Yeah, I'm not. I'm also not leaning towards a uh, mistaken identity. I, I don't. <clears throat> you know, I'm leaning towards a pterodon or something like it, um, because truthfully. We do know that parrots do that. You know, they use their beak and they kind of grab and then they shift their legs down and then they grab further down and they shift their legs down and stuff like that. Who knows what sort of other animals that used to exist, you know, put that in quotes if you want, um, that also did that with their, you know, beaks or their mouths. Um, It's hard to say, but yeah, I'm... I'm definitely on board with this being a, being a flipping uh, what you call it a you know giant flying reptile that didn't go extinct. Um, you know, yeah. I don't know. Jeff it's cool. Hates these topics. You can see it in his face. Well, he's not the cryptid guy. Oh, he's I'm not. actually. I'm just looking at different lizards because <clears throat> I think if, if anything, it'd be a lizard. It wouldn't be a bat. Yeah, reptile. It That's where I know. Probably some too. weird cave reptile that doesn't ever see the light of day and they just happened upon it on accident. You know? Yeah. Yeah, but the biggest reptiles we have on Earth don't fly. No, but you know, that doesn't mean that that couldn't happen, right? I mean, like Jeremy was saying, there are these lizards. I'm looking at them right here, you know, that well, they glide, yeah, that glide, right? So, I mean, you could have one of these, like I said, living in a cave just totally cut off from the rest of evolution if you will and maybe like i actually watched a little thing about the uh the komodo dragon and that the reason why they look so bumpy is because those are bone protrusions all over its body that act like some sort of a you know a shield right so I don't know. Let's talk about Jeff's point. What if there was something the size of one of those things, which they are the size of alligators. Mm -hmm. Um, They're huge and they can run pretty dang fast. You can actually get chased down by one and then, you know, get your arms ripped off. But, uh, but it has a, it can glide, right? It has those um, flaps of skin in its sides that protrude out that allow it to glide. Um, If that was the case, then it would certainly have to have a running start in order to make that, that glide possible yeah which i would think that the description would be different but that would you know certainly lend claim to it doing that sort of stuff but again i don't know if those things well they do climb i've definitely seen ones like up higher than they should be like on top of cabinets and stuff but i don't know interesting are you guys ready to move on to my next option I only got two two paragraphs left, Jeff, so that's good for you. And I think you're going to like these two. These are more up. The last one's up Jeff's wheelhouse. This one, Jeff Jeff will deal with this. He'll, he'll like this one. <laughs> How about ETs? In their book, Lewis, Voss, and Nelson touch on the subject of extraterrestrials. And I think this is a very important topic to talk about with the Van Meter Visitor. First, let's look at the light. Orbs. White lights and mysterious flashes have been associated with abduction and alien encounters since recorded history on the subject. Lights are so common that I cannot even come up with one single encounter where a light, whether it seemed to move independently or was attached to some UFO of sorts. 
But what about the description of the creature? One subject that I need to stop putting aside is the idea of screen memories. As I reported in many other episodes, a screen memory can be one of two things. It can be a false memory put into place by a being such as an extraterrestrial to cover up certain important details of their devious acts. This is commonly an owl or other woodland critters like deer or squirrel. Or a screen memory can also be self-induced. This means that you can witness something so crazy that your mind literally blocks it from your from you witnessing it and replaces the image in your memory with something else. Both have been extensively studied and both seem very plausible. Another aspect that come that comes common with alien encounters is the smell of sulfur. In the outline of events, a terrible smell was mentioned a few times by different people. People who have undergone hypnotherapy or other regressive memory techniques and have reportedly uncovered a hidden alien abduction event in their lives often describe a putrid smell just before and after the encounter. This is often thought to be the way that whatever these things are that are abducting us knock us out before taking us to whatever, wherever and whatever they do to us. O.V. White, who was the man who fell asleep in the room above his store and first saw the creature on top of the telephone pole, described after shooting at it that there was an intense smell that overcame him and confused him. Could this be the same smell that is associated with extraterrestrial contact? Could this be why every time someone shot at the thing, it didn't phase it at all? Could it have actually been, could it have actually been there or was it just a physical memory placed there to cover up the actual image of the glowing orb commonly associated with alien abduction stories? I love this possibility and I believe that it could really hold some weight here. Not a chance. (laughs) Are you calling Whitley Strieber a liar? Because he smelt cardboard and cinnamon. He did. (laughs) <laughs> well, that, that that was during the encounter, but I mean, not all alien abduction stories is like Whitley Streamers. That it's a very unique one. It is. It's very, yeah. very funny. They unique. really liked him, to say in the least. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Jeffrey, anything, buddy? Nah, nah, dude. I mean, if extraterrestrials are real and they are coming here from across the galaxy or whatever the universe like they're not coming in that form they're not coming in a form in the form of a freaking dragon no they were coming as an orb guy orb i was an orb okay maybe maybe what about just like that movie uh future war i just watched it again the other day where they were passengers on the alien spacecraft that crashed here and somehow got way down deep underground, and then through coal mining, they released it from the ship. Future War, huh? Could be. Yeah. Right. Could Maybe be I should too. watch that. Yeah, you should. It's you know, awesome. <laughs> honestly, though, man, like the erasing of history around that time, around the turn of the century, right? Like that, in my mind, is playing a big part in all of this shit, right? Any any of these stories that we find in that time period, I'm, I'm automatically like, yo, what did they erase that had to do with this? Because if you go wow. deep enough into like the mud floods and in the, you know, Tataria and all that shit, you'll realize like, yo, right at the turn of the century, dude, everything that we thought we knew, like we don't even know what year it is. Like we think it's 2023. It's probably not. It's probably like 1023, you know, like it's crazy shit. So, all right. Well, Jeff, you always talk about, um, you know, whenever 
someone brings up extraterrestrials, you say, well, yeah, extra terra, right? Right. So could these things be from on the other side of the ice wall? If could they're they flat and there is land beyond the ice I mean, wall, sure, they could be from there. They you talked about that in relation to the hollow earth and stuff, you yeah. know? Yeah, all those things apply. I mean... I don't know. Not a chance that they're aliens, though. All right. I just... <laughs> That, that there, there's so many more possibilities to, that just to jump that these beings came from across the universe. Like, I'm just like, dude, there's so many other things that could hey. that are more realistic than bro. That. They flew across the, the universe, right? Yeah, duh. Yeah, dumbass. <laughs> However, they use their light to illuminate did, their way through the blackness of space. Did, then they probably would be orbs of light. If you yes. can travel the universe, you probably would be light. So, I'm with that. I don't know. What about ultra-terrestrials, Jeff? Like time? That's my next section. You ready? All right. Ultra-terrestrials. Last one. All right. While we are on the subject of lights and the unknown, I feel like I should point out the abundance of lights associated with not only ghostly orbs, alien abductions, UFO sightings, and yes, even Bigfoot encounters, but rather the ones associated with another being one that lives in the land fringe of our existence and between the physical and spiritual realms, the one that live in another imperceivable dimension to human eyes. Ultra-terrestrials are the one topic in Fortean topics that we know the least amount, least about, and the best sources of information on these beings are through the works of John Keel and Jacques Vallée. You pronounced it right. Jacques Valley. <laughs> These ultra terrestrials come in all different shapes and sizes. Why is that? Nobody knows, but the best guesses come from how the witnesses perceive or how they wish to be perceived by the witness. And just like all other topics of the unknown, they are often accompanied by various forms of light. For a very, and I mean very brief moment, I will touch on them as it associates with the van visitor from van meter everything else will be saved for a future episode where we dive into the subject on its own in the future first thing i would like to point out is the sound that this creature made it was described as a scream or drawn out high-pitched howl now since ultra terrestrials as defined by john keel live in a dimension without time they communicate in ways that we cannot perceive and when they speak or make sounds, they end up doing so in a way that sounds very weird to the human ear. They attempt to slow down their voice, which ends up coming out as a screeching sound, mixed with very fast-paced speech in a language we cannot understand. This has been described in encounters with gray aliens, spirits, jinn, disembodied voices, yes, even Bigfoot, as well as other forms of paranormal entities. Keel summarized it like this in his famous book, The Mothman Prophecies. Quote, their rapid-fire, unintelligible, quote, language noted by witnesses all over the world as sounding like a speeding up of a phonograph record could be caused by their failure to adjust to our time cycle when they enter our space-time continuum. They are talking at a different rate because their time is different from ours. When they manage to adjust, they have to forcibly slow themselves down, articulating their words slowly in a sing-song manner. Now, I would like to dive into their form that they are seen in. Well, specifically the Van Meter Visitor. It is said that the ultra-terrestrials will show themselves in forms that we can comprehend. Think of what a being from outside our dimensions made up of 
XYZ axis and time might look like. Whatever you're thinking is most likely wrong. The form may literally be something we cannot perceive. And with these beings having the ability of visit, visiting our dimension, their physics may have to play along, and the forms that they take are thought to derive directly from the collective consciousness of those that witness them. This area of Iowa in 1903 was heavily populated with German immigrants, and the fact alone brought some very interesting finds that Lewis, Voss, and Nelson wrote about in their book, The Van Meter Visitor. In summary, like many cultures from around the world, German folklore is full of mysterious creatures, and one said creature is the Habergeist, which we touched briefly on in our episode on the lore of Krampus, as is part of the Austrian lore as well. In the times of pagans, this Habergeist was known as a spirit of fields and crops and was called up in fall as part of a celebration to ensure a good harvest, and the description of this creature was a man-sized bird with a blunt horn on its head. It made strange sounds and ruled the dead of night. Sound familiar? What if the visitor was one of these ultra-terrestrials, which chose the physical description of a Habergeist, due to the beliefs of the people that were currently living in the area? And to add just one more parallel, the visitor's terror on Van Meter happened at the end of September and at the beginning of October, the same time frame that pagan Germany would be celebrating and watching out for the Habergeist. Still not convinced? What if I were to tell you that there was another aspect to incidents involving supposed ultra-terrestrials? The smell of sulfur. The smell that has been described as fire and brimstone around cemetery, guardian spirits, skunk apes of Florida, great alien encounters, and of course, our flying monster in Van Meter, Iowa. But that's enough on ultra-terrestrials for today. More to come on a future episode of Infinite Rabbit Hole. The end. So you mean demons that project themselves as the um, cult gods of pagans? That's a very, yes, but also much more than that. <coughs> you know what I'm saying? That's a very, like, simple way to think about that. And I don't mean that in an offensive way. I just mean, like, there is much more to that. Yes, I would say that's the jinn. That is the trickster. We've talked about this before. So that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Right? The demon. This this makes sense. I had a feeling you were going to like that one. Yeah. That's it, guys. That is all that I have about the Van Meter Visitor. Everything that you can know about it, every, every angle that I can come up with has all been put on the table. That's it. Well, you know what this means. Good job. Got to put in our bucket list items that we're going to go to... Uh, I guess I can't get out of the podcast yet because we're going to have to go to Iowa to dig around in all the caves and look for bones. <laughs> <laughs> well, sucks nope. to suck because you're leaving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm telling you, if I... The, you know what that means, though? If I take a camping trip to northern uh, California again and I find any sort of Bigfoot trackways and stuff like that and find all this evidence of them... And I'm going to have to start my own show. And you know, be like, why didn't you tell me and be like, oh, you said I was done with the show. So <laughs> you said you were done with the show. Yeah. I then didn't you, kick you out of here. You, you confirmed it and kicked me out. Yeah. 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 You All said right, you're fired. Never come back. All right. Final thoughts. Kid, let's go with you first since you, you didn't talk much today. No, I didn't. I was honestly quite enjoying the story. Um, I honestly like the. Uh, inner earth 
being hollow earth theory here. Um, especially because it's a coal mining area. There's lots of caves in the area. It just, in my mind, it just fits and it's, it works. So that's the one I'm going to go with. I dig it. Right on. Uh, let's go Jacob. Uh, I am not going to say that it's not some cave dwelling reptile leaning more towards though that it it more likely was maybe one of five of just unextinct flying reptiles um not or not necessarily that it came from the hollow earth but maybe it just resided in caves because in the area it was pretty flat or you know nothing really going on so in order to protect itself it would have lived in a, a cave type system um, and that we have no idea what dinosaurs, you know, had on their, their bodies, their skin, you know, all that sort of stuff, what it looked like, um, with the exception of some that have been discovered that still have their skin, but it was more like, you know, thick plates, pl- thick plated scales and stuff like that, where it actually survived, um, their fossilization and stuff. Um, and they didn't, it didn't rot away till it was just bones and then it was covered up with sand or whatever. Um, but Yeah. I uh I dig the story. I liked being able to, you know, the way you broke it down and being able to kind of just, you know, talk out my thoughts and try to get a handle on stuff. But I certainly think that this more than likely could have been a real story, you know, and that's pretty cool. Now, could it be 100% fake? Sure. But, you know, in regards to how it was constructed, the um, description of the beast and all that sort of stuff it certainly seems like it would fit the description of a real animal now is that because as coal miners in 1903 in iowa they uncovered the remains of a um of a pterodon you know and then developed a story around it could be right could it be because one escaped from the hollow earth i don't know could be (laughs) you know i i don't know i i don't i don't really have a handle on it exactly where it came from or what it was, but certainly it doesn't um, immediately check the blocks of this is made up nonsense or folklore. All right, Jeff. Final thoughts. Interdimensional ultra terrestrials. You think so? Probably. Or bullshit. It's <laughs> Iowa in 1903. It's either bullshit because it's Iowa in 1903 or interdimensional time traveling ultra terrestrial demons right on just pick pick everything d all of the above all of the above. <laughs> if you do that you do it wrong so yeah. he went from thinking this is complete bullshit to everything <laughs> yeah inner was it extraterrestrial ultra terrestrial <laughs> Interdimensional time traveling, traveling ultra terrestrial demons, orbs that traveled across the universe from the hollow earth (laughs) pre flood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy! All right, all right. My final thoughts. Uh, This is one of my absolute favorites when it comes to a creature uh, in the United States. This is just a fantastic urban legend. I don't know. 
uh, if it's true. I, I think that this one definitely has a really good chance of being true. Um, I love it. I think that it's great. The only thing that bothers me is the light on the forehead. That's it. Everything else. Like if the light in the forehead wasn't a thing, I'd be like, dude, this was a turn. This was like somehow this thing uh, lived. I mean, if you look right now, there are some pictures online of of like old Western guys holding up dead pteranodons, right? And I, I want to say most of them are probably fake, mm-hmm. probably. But who knows? One of them out there, out of the the fifteen that you could bring up on a Google search, maybe one of them's real. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um. I think that there definitely could have been pockets. I mean, shoot, we still get sightings of pteranodons. I mean, yep. people still report sightings of pteranodons. It happens, right? Could there be a small pop- population? I doubt there is any more. But in 1903, back when we were very undeveloped, especially in that area, I could see it. I could see it. I definitely could. Um, I... I just can't get over the light. The light is the only thing. I just can't. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I I like the light because it gives the van meter visitor its image. Like that is the personality of the van meter visitor is the light on the forehead. Right. You can look at anything. Anybody that knows anything about cryptozoology. Right. You can look at anything and you'd be like, oh, it's a, a bird, a big crow, but it has a mm-hmm. light on its head. So that's supposed to be the van meter visitor. Right. Well, that's why I said the the lantern was stuck on its horn. Yeah, maybe. Good possibility. <laughs> I mean, everything from them saying that there was a, a dull horn on its head. I mean, pteranodons were known to have crests. I mean, yeah. shoot, some some birds still do. Um, in fact, some some reptiles still have uh, a small crest. Um, it's shoot. Even Bigfoot has a sagittal crest. Right. Mm. I mean, this was it just makes sense. Everything just makes sense. This was also not something that was attacking the people. Right now, could it have been fucking with them? Yes. And I think that's where uh, Jeff has some weight here to the ultra terrestrial idea. I don't think it was an ultra terrestrial. I don't think that they would have bothered with anybody in 1903 and bumfuck nowhere, Iowa. You know, ultra terrestrials are, are kind of uh, they're, they're They'll come around in important times, like when they start up the hyd- hydron collider in uh, in Switzerland. You know, mm-hmm. what I'm like that's when an ultra terrestrial is going to show up and start fucking with things. Um, they're probably not going to go do it in the middle of bumfuck nowhere, 1903, in a small mining town of a thousand people. Unless you exist outside of time and that's irrelevant. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, but what what was important going on there in 1903? The thing about ultra-terrestrials, right? And they say Mothman is an ultra-terrestrial who comes around during times of... of, of uh, it's, a, it's a harbinger of death, right? The, the bridge goes down, the Silver Bridge, and that separates Ohio from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and the Mothman shows up. The Mothman is thought to be an, an ultra-terrestrial that shows up during these things uh as like a watcher of history as it's made um maybe if there's something that happened out there who knows possibly when i'm I... saying Go i'm saying tarantum and i'm saying that the light is a fabricated part of the story just to add flair 
Yeah. Whenever I hear these stories, I kind of give them the Mel's Hole test in my brain. And I'm like, how like Mel's Hole is this story? And this story is really nothing like Mel's Hole. Right. Which is which is more than likely it's real. <laughs> <You know? laughs> because Mel Hole Mel's Hole is as fake as the day is long. And, <laughs> and it's just, you know, so it's like, oh, well, probably has 20, some validity to this. 24 hours fake, right. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, what do you think, travelers? Do you think that the Van Meter Visitor is a flesh and blood cryptid that we should be looking into? Do you think it was a creature from the past? Do you think it was a creature from the stars? Do you think it was a creature from beyond our dimensions? Until next time, everybody. We'll see you right back here in the next fork of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Adios. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.